Welcome to another episode of the Education Endowment Foundation podcast, Evidence into Action. In this podcast, we speak to experts in the field about educational topics. We speak to from everything from professors and experts in area of research to brilliant school leaders and teachers. And today we have another podcast which does just that. The focus of this podcast is going to be improving primary science. Um, at the Education Endowment Foundation, we've just produced um, a new excellent guidance report on that very topic of improving primary science. So we're going to speak to some brilliant colleagues. We're going to speak to Dr. Sarah Earle, who's reader in education at Bath Spa University and is linked to TAPS, a, a brilliant um, programme for primary science. We're going to speak to Ben Rogers, who's Director of Curriculum Pedagogy at the Paradigm Trust, science expert, author, um, brilliant speaker on all things science. And we're going to speak to Michaela Moore, who's um, from the Delta Trust um, and a colleague who's teaching science and leading science. And again, bringing all things primary science to the podcast. Um, and now I'm going to introduce uh, my co-host. It's a new co-host. And um, so I'm sure you're excited about that. Uh, it's Grace Coker, who's a colleague of mine. Grace, introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, Alex. Uh, real pleasure to be here. Uh, so uh, I'm Grace Coker. I am currently a content specialist for the EEF. Um, I've been a primary school teacher and leader for the last 15 years, and I'm based up in uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. I've always been super passionate about STEM subjects, and I always aim to inspire this love of learning science, technology, engineering and maths with the pupils and teachers that I work with. So I am super excited to be here and spend some quality time talking science with our expert guests today. Well, you can be the expert in science. I can't quite justify calling myself an expert in science. My GCSE grades uh, bear that out. Uh, so anything that's quite technical, you pick that up and, and I'll I'll support you wholeheartedly. Okay, <laughs> let's get started then. Let's be our first guest. I'm really delighted to introduce our first guest on this podcast about primary science. And it's Dr. Sarah Earle, who's Reader in Education at Bath Spa University. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and about uh, your work here in the realm of science? Yes. Hi, everyone. Um, so I started as a primary school teacher in Bristol in 1999. Um, so I, I taught for 13 years and then I moved into initial teacher education at Bath Spa University. Um, quite quickly got involved in a big research project that's kind of taken over everything else. But yeah, I got my fingers in all the primary science pies. So um, you'll see you'll see me <laughs> in whichever guise you look at primary science, yeah. I'm sure. Can you tell us about that project that uh, whetted people's appetite? Tell us yeah. a bit more about it. <laughs> um, it's the one that's mostly associated with me because it's been going for 10 years. So it's called TAPS. It's the Teacher Assessment in Primary Science Project. Um, and I have to spell it out because the teacher assessment bit is the really important bit. It's it's about supporting teachers with the teaching and with um, learning in the classroom and assessment because it's part of teaching and learning. Um, so it's very much embedded part of teaching and learning. Um, and it was yeah, originally funded by the Primary Science Teaching Trust for about nine years. And we've been working with the EEF for the last few years um, on capacity building and a randomized control trial and all sorts of things. So it's got bigger and bigger across the, the each of the nations of the UK. But there's lots and lots mm -hmm. of online resources, two big products, I suppose. One is the pyramid model, which is the principles behind TAPS, and then the focused assessment um, activity, lesson plans and um, pupil work examples to help people to um, 
show them the way of, of doing a particular approach to teaching and assessing and um, working scientifically in particular. So yeah, there's plenty of stuff on the internet all about it. <laughs> and it features really clearly uh, in the new primary science guidance, because I, I think that the real strong evidence for TAPS and its effectiveness is something that's really important to share. Uh, and, and there is a specific recommendation about using assessment to support learning, responsive teaching. This is a tricky area, though, isn't it, for science leads and, and just you know, science practitioners more generally. Um, why do you think assessment is so tricky um, for primary science? I mean, assessment generally is tricky because you're trying to do a lot with it. Um, and most people, when we think about assessment, we immediately think of that summative assessment and, oh, we must fill in the tracker um, in whichever yeah, subject yeah. we're doing in. And so that's the that's the immediate thought. But what we're the bit that makes the difference in the classroom is actually that ongoing formative assessment. And that's harder because you need a lot of knowledge in your head about the subject and the children and trying to be responsive and adaptive. Um, so it, there's a lot going on, I suppose. And in primary science in particular, it's hard because um, although it's a core subject, it's not got as much time. Um, you, you tend to do it in the afternoon and um, you, it's often practical with lots of um, activities going on, lots of um, 30 children charging around with stuff in their hands. It's, it's, it's hard to keep track of it all and hard to do that adaptive teaching, responsive teaching on the go. So there's lots of reasons why it's hard, but also my, I suppose my argument for spending so long thinking about it is that um, if we can get better at doing the ongoing formative assessment bit, then we can impact the children's learning. And that was the whole argument for um, trying to do a randomised control trial with the EF in the, in the first place, because um, by supporting um, teachers to be able to know what it looks like to get better at doing science and and what does progression in primary science look like what does what yeah. does it look like for the children to get better at doing it then if we can build that understanding then we can also support teachers to use that information in the classroom and that ongoing formative assessment is the bit that makes the difference so so yes it's hard but also it's worth it um, because if you are using it formatively then you're immediately impacting the children's learning and that's mm. what makes the difference i think I, and there's quite a lot in there about teacher subject knowledge about curriculum progression about diagnostic assessment and 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 selecting the right tools for the job sometimes activities various guises just at, at the start you mentioned about kind of summative assessments and sometimes we can kind of confuse the two and that you know, quality diagnostic kind of get trumped by almost the kind of um, the summative assessment and punching in data at various points. Um, one of the debates around science, I think, is around its profile with national assessments. So you have obviously, you know, national assessments that are very high profile and high stakes, frankly, around mathematics and, and reading, etc. Um, what do you think that the kind of absence of um, that high stakes is a hindrance or is it actually a benefit where actually we can focus on high quality diagnostic assessment and not be distracted by kind of chasing a, a kind of a national assessment? Oh, we're getting into some big questions here. Very exciting, Alex. Um, yeah, the the removal of science sats at the age 11 um, in 2009 was, that decision was taken because it had led to teaching to the test and it was about um, trying to um, 
get children to answer questions on paper rather than um, doing the science and developing a deeper understanding of it. So there was a, a, there was quite a clear reason for the skewed curriculum um, and things not wanting to carry that on. So there was a reason for removing that. Um, the aim was that then you'd be, you'd be able to um, focus more on the children, which is particularly important in primary science because they come with already ideas about how the world works, um, finding out children's ideas and their alternative frameworks or um, naive ideas or pre-misconceptions, whatever, whatever term you call it, mm. children have yeah. lots of them in science. Um, which is not necessarily the same for other subjects. So it's really important to to find out about children's ideas. Um, and um, so obviously that's that's something really key to start with where the children are um, as something which we very much want to learn from the early years in, in, that, in that sense. Um, I think what, what we need to do is recognise that science um, in primary schools in England at the moment is... Um, in this difficult situation of being a core, um, but also not being in the accountability measures. Now, we're not arguing to be in the accountability measures because then it, it leads to a different kind of skewing as was happening um, pre-2009. But by not being in the accountability measures, then it means that it gets squeezed. So we have to sort of raise science up to be something that is important in its own right, rather than just because it will feature um, in a league table. So, so yeah, it's it's a difficult debate to have. But I think um, it it's it's really important to recognise that prime practical primary science is something that you need a range of information to find out whether the children are meeting expectations or not and the end of key stage judgment that teachers need to make at the end of year two and year six is something which you draws on virtually the whole national curriculum it's not something that you can just um, make a judgment about in one afternoon in whatever activity you're asking the children to do so it needs to draw on a range of information over time um, and so this is where um, perhaps um, especially for primary science, we're arguing that the ongoing information that you're collecting um, and supporting the children's learning, some of that information can be summarised when you need to. So some of the information, um, when you're doing a particular topic, you can see whether the kids have got it or not. And then you move on to the next thing and you might revisit it and, and things, but you won't be revisiting every single thing about science that they've learned in the whole primary school in in one afternoon so so it's about that ongoing development that's a lot of information <laughs> yeah well, it, it, it is a big challenging topic isn't it i think you've really described some of the tensions and and the changes um over time and and actually there is no kind of easy answer in terms of um reinstating tests or removing tests actually it's a much more complex terrain isn't it about kind of judgment about assessment over time um so i there was no easy answer I, I was trying to elicit but i think you've explored the debate really helpfully for people particularly you know colleagues who might not be experts in primary science i think that the bigger picture here the policy picture is important as well yeah and one thing just to add before we move on is that um, in terms of assessment, there is no perfect assessment, and this applies to any subject. Every yeah, yeah. assessment is always a tricky balance. It's it's what you're trying to use it for. Is it is it is it giving you enough information that you can then act upon it? Um, and so there isn't this perfect assessment or this perfect mm. assessment structure mm. out there that we're looking um, to try yeah. and implement. What we're trying to do is is to um, is to make it good enough for the needs that we want to put it to um that was yeah. very poor english i apologize 
No, no, I think that's a really, really crucial you know, point. Sometimes we do simplify assessment to, you know, there's a national assessment and that's all we should think about. Actually, there's so much more nuance there. And, and science leads in primary school know that and they're grappling with this challenge and it's not easy. Um, and so, yeah, I think it needs exploring as difficult as topic as it is. Um, just move move on, to actually go back to something you mentioned about TAP. So you mentioned, obviously, about the the centrality of assessment, but you mentioned the phrase working scientifically, and that's um, a recommendation in the guidance about kind of um, thinking carefully, guiding pupils to work scientifically. Can you just explain, um, in fact, for primary teachers, but also more broadly, what do we mean by working scientifically? Yeah, so working scientifically is the title given to the chunk of the national curriculum, which is not the subject content knowledge. So the substantive knowledge, the, the content knowledge of science, the biology, physics, chemistry bit, um, everything that's not that is is lumped under this working scientifically term. And that is is all the disciplinary knowledge um, in offset terms. It's the it's the, the, the skills of being able to um, use equipment like um, thermometers and stopwatches. It's the um, ability to be able to make predictions and draw conclusions and do that plan, do review cycle of investigation and inquiry. But it's also got a bit of that nature of science stuff in what is it, what does it mean to be a scientist? What does it mean to um, build scientific knowledge and, 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 and trust in evidence and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, it's a big bag of stuff. Um, about how scientists work. Um, and so I think that's one of the difficulties about trying to teach it in the classroom. There's so many different avenues you can go down when you're looking at yeah. working scientifically that are you trying to teach um, um, the plan do review process? Are you trying to um, think about the particular inquiry type that your um, the context is, which is a bit like the genre in English. So, the mm. the the what kind of inquiry you're doing is the is the genre, and then what um, what skills you're implementing uh, as part of the inquiry um, is the sort of the 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 the. the, the the detail of the subject really that we're trying to support the children to develop as they go through so yeah there's a there's a lot in there um and the disciplinary knowledge chunk of science is probably how you'd sh shorten it nowadays um but okay. trying to That's support helpful. teach yeah trying to support teachers with with how to teach that and which bit to focus on i think is is um the current challenge for many people and yeah. i think that um one of the things that the guidance is trying to do is to is to raise this up as um this working scientifically stuff is is includes things that need to be taught it's not just the experience of it it's actually you need to show them how to draw a results table or um show what a good one looks like for um drawing conclusions and that kind of mm. thing um there's a there's a bit of guidance in the report itself but obviously there's a lot of work in the sector around yeah. working scientifically too so it feels it feels really salient, really important for primary school teachers to be confident about what that means. You just described it as it's a bag of complex stuff, which sounds like it's pretty tricky to assess. Um, how would you then go about kind of making some manageable assessments of, of working scientifically is the way of going about that? Yeah, so this is the this has been the main focus for TAPS for the 
last 10 years because it's the hardest bit. Um, of course, trying to um, make judgments about children's conceptual understanding can be really difficult, um, but it can be done a bit more in isolation, I suppose, and there's lots of different ways of discussing concept cartoons or doing quizzes and all sorts of things. Um, with working scientifically, it is a bit different because some of the things will need to happen during the actual activity, during the time that the investigation is going, you can only see if they can control variables when they're actually in the inv investigation and are they controlling them or not. So um, if you're doing a fair test, for example, so ways of doing this is what we've been looking at um, with all the different teachers that we've worked with across the UK. And so it, um, the answer that we have is the focused assessment approach. So the idea is that within the context of a whole inquiry, a whole investigation, one focus is picked. So say, for example, you are rolling cars down ramps or dragging shoes across different surfaces to try and investigate friction, really common investigations in the primary school. Um, instead of trying to um, either leave the children to get on with it and not, not give them any instruction or the opposite end of the spectrum is re recipe following and give every instruction and the see if the children can do you follow your instructions. There is a way in between. And what we're suggesting is that you've picked a um, area to focus on during the lesson and say, for example, that's conclusions. Then as a class, you agree what you're going to investigate and then groups go off and investigate. And then the bit that you individually focus on for um your attention and any writing or um, recording that the children are doing is the bit that's the focus. So in that case, it could be conclusions or in a different lesson, it could be drawing results tables or in a different lesson, it could be making predictions using their knowledge of friction or um, near the end of the unit or whatever. So um, the TAPS resources have lots of these um, lesson plans. I think it's about 120 now. Um, as examples of this is how you can do it. So here's an activity. This is what it looks like in primary science. This is what it looks like for a particular age to have that particular focus. And then here's some indication of what it would look like for children to be meeting those expectations. Um, and so using that approach and developing that approach across the course of the year is um, what the three day Focus for TAPS program is. And that's the bit that's been EEF trialed um, and we'll be setting up another one at the moment. So um, there's there's not a shortage of that around, but for anyone not on that, there is there is a, um, a load of resources on the internet um, about this particular area. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, it's really, really helpful and sort of narrowing that focus. And I, as a primary school uh, teacher myself, narrowing that focus uh, for assessment is really, uh, really helpful in the, in the TAPS work. Um, I was just wondering, are there any particular sort of go-to strategies you would suggest teachers use when assessing children? Um, it, there, I don't want to give the answer, it depends, but it does on the age and stage of the children and the topic that you're doing. So if you're working with um, five and six year olds, then obviously getting them to write their own conclusions is not is not the thing that they need to be doing. Um, I think the thing that cuts across all the years, though, is talking. And that's something that really features in the guidance report. And in fact, it's, it's the probably the bit that I go to first really is that is that getting them to talk and explain their thinking is really drawing on on lots of different areas um, because you're getting them they might be doing paired talk or talk with you in smaller groups or with or, or um, um, as a as a class and 
in all of that time, they're having to think about um, their the vocabulary they're losing, using, they're thinking about linking it to ideas from other contexts, things that they already know. So it's immediately linking back to their own experiences as well, which is really important for making them feel that science is for them, building their science capital. Um, but also you're finding out as a teacher um, what they're thinking. Um, and in science in particular, that's really important because they will come with ideas that are different from the accepted scientific view. They will have created their own common sense ways. And most of us adults have these too. Um, it, we see things in the real life and we assume that's how things work. And there is a perhaps a different science explanation for how that's going on. So identifying those misconceptions and things is really important. So talking uh, is really important. The other thing I really like in science is diagrams, getting the children to draw what they think so how does sound work how do you see things those kind of things are really those elicitation strategies are really interesting because the children's drawings and labeled diagrams show you a lot about what they're thinking um, in terms of processes and things as well so those are probably my go-to bits I think yeah absolutely uh, things like uh, sort of concept cartoons odd one out uh, those uh, sort of tasks you know uh, can be great to elicit what the children already know uh, and that can help you uh, to sort of plan for future lessons so it's it's uh, how you use the information isn't it and respond to it uh, that's that's the most important part um I've got a yeah, and sorry, just before moving on, one one resource that I should mention because it's free. I'm sure it's in the guidance document somewhere, but I haven't memorized every word, is Explorify. So if you haven't seen Explorify, then it's a great way of getting that discussion started because there's lots of high quality resources in there. So a really good resource. Um, if someone else doesn't mention that, it's important I do. Yeah, excellent resource. So here's a question for those primary science leads who are listening. If they have identified the need to strengthen their school's approach to science assessment, where's the best place to start? Hmm, good question. I, I almost want to broaden that out to um, primary science generally, because they might start with looking at assessment, but it's it's the um, it, the teaching bit of it that will, will help as well. I think what I want to say here is that looking at what you what already happens in school so taking something like the um the, the taps work or the or the eef guidance report and looking at what's already happening so celebrating the things that are already going on so your school might have had already a, um, a push on oracy or a push on vocabulary or a push on thinking or linking to real life context so some of those things that are in the eef report might already be happening in your school um but what's not and for those schools where um, all of this is very new, it's about picking one thing, one one thing to try. And that's one of the messages that we um, have on the on the TAPS three day course as well is there's loads and loads of different things you could try um, in terms of self-assessment or peer assessment or focused recording or all sorts of things. But which one thing you're going to try in your class or your school that might make the difference? And although it feels almost like, oh, well, I'm only trying one thing out of all these things. Actually, each thing will impact other things. So in the same way that getting the children to do more talking, it also develops their um, vocabulary and they're linking it to real life and all that kind of stuff. So, and the same way with assessment, if you're, if you're 
if you're thinking about developing more um, discussion so that you can elicit children's ideas or focusing on um, one bit of recording or focusing on peer support, peer assessment, each of those things individually will affect other other areas of the TAPS pyramid or the, or the um, responses from the guidance report because um, to do almost all of those things, you need to be clear about what you're trying to teach and what you want the children to learn. And by being clear yourself, um, then that will support the children in, in what, they're, what you're trying to get them to do as well. That's really helpful, Sarah. I love that. You, you talked about focus already for assessment and then just that one thing that feels really manageable um, and, and for busy science leads as well who don't often have a lot of, you know, PD time or kind of time to develop the subject expertise or, or kind of practice in the school that feels doable. Um, it, it stole my final question a little bit as well. So my final question was you know, one bit of advice for primary science leads, but I want to just tweak that question a little bit. And then what would be your one piece of advice for primary heads, cur curriculum deputy heads or kind of trust leads in relation the science because it feels like some of this is about supporting science leads and teachers to undertake this work so it feels like there's important leadership decisions and support here so what would be your one bit of advice for primary heads curriculum leads and any trust leads who are aiming to support science and development the first thing that comes to mind is is a is i suppose a passion of mine is is trying to empower teachers um it's it's not about um, sending the link for this guidance report or the link to the TAPS website or whatever to science leads and say, okay, implement that, please. Um, it's, it's about getting them on board and saying, okay, these resources exist, these guidance reports exist. Um, what can we use out of that? So it's perhaps um, inviting the science leads to be able to have a little bit of time to, to look at the things themselves, maybe a bit of time to talk to other staff in the school and then identify which bit might we try. And it might be something that that's the easiest thing to implement because they're fairly new um, at leading the science role or it might be something that they think, oh, actually that's gonna make a big difference in our school or that's new, we haven't tried it before and new things are always nice and shiny, aren't they? Um, but whatever it is, it, it can't be all of it at once. Um, primary science is something that evolves over time and it's within the context of everything else. When I was a science lead, I'd get one staff meeting a year and that's fairly standard. So um, it's perhaps giving the um, science lead the opportunity to, to look at some of these things, pick something to try, try it with their own class maybe, and then be able to share it with other staff. So a bit of staff time, um, a bit of yeah. a bit of time in a, in a, in a meeting, um, but further down the line, it doesn't have to be immediate. Um, in, in, we always want to immediately jump up and, and react and say, oh, we've got to be doing this all the time. And, it, and actually, sometimes things take a while. They, you need to try them out yourself yeah. first. So if people have never yeah. used Explorify, they want to try it in their own class or whatever first, uh, giving, the, giving them the time to be able to do that to then, um, so that the staff meeting's not tomorrow, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit further down the line. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's about providing that agency for the science lead because then um, it, it's it's supporting their subject leadership and valuing their expertise as well and and they're the experts in their class 
classroom and context. Um, so, yeah, teacher agency is is uh, one of my big topics at the moment. I feel like you've just captured what school improvement should be. Talking about big <laughs> topics, I think I think that's a perfect last word. Uh, thank you. I think that notion of agency and time and quality support for science leads and teachers um, is an ideal note um, for the podcast. So thank you for your time, Sarah, and your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm delighted to introduce our second guest, uh, Ben Rogers, Director of Curriculum and Pedagogy at the Paradigm Trust. Uh, ben, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background for us? Sure. Hi, Alex. Um, hi, Grace. I'm uh, Ben Rogers. I started teaching. I did my physics degree back in 92, um, uh, which was a terrible year to finish a physics degree. There, was, there were no jobs. So I went and taught English for two years in Berlin, which was, oh, wow. I think, it, was, it really started me off because um, the, 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 the pedagogy of teaching English uh, as a foreign language was really struck yeah. and really interesting. Um, uh, 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 which then, so then I did my PGCE and then I taught. Um, I, my first job was in um, with VSO Volunteer Services Oversea, which was again there were. I mean, language was a really big part of that teaching because it, English is second language to all the kids that I was teaching over there. And then came back, taught high school for a total of eighteen years. Moved to um, primary um, and taught for primary in primary for four or five years before I then took on this role. So I think I got quite a. a an, an interesting journey through where I've had different experiences that have sort of fed in. And it means, it mean, I mean, it means a lot of things to, to me, but language and science together have been really interesting um, uh, and, and really important through, throughout my career. Yeah, I, I love the unconventional pathway you've got on there and kind of thinking about teaching and mediating, communicating with different audiences, different phases. I think I, one of the things which we'll probably come back to in a moment, but around... Um, the language of science in many ways is an act of translation, isn't it? So there's a, that interesting parallels. I'd love to pick that up again. Just before we do pick that up again. Um, so as part of the development of the Primary Science Guidance Report, um, we have a panel um, which supports um, some of the choices we're making, some of the recommendations and, and tries to take the evidence review and, and, and help that translation into more practical recommendations. Talk a little bit about, about that experience uh, and some of your reflections on that for us. Well, I mean, I've been using EEF guidance, uh, the, well, the toolkit originally, and then the guidance reports for years um, without having put a great deal of thought on how they were constructed. You, can't, you, you build up a sense of trust on, 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 yeah. on how it works. Uh, the, the the clarity of the language, the little padlocks, all that sort of stuff, um, is really useful. So uh, when I heard that um, uh, the, the the a primary science program was being written, I was very interested. Um, applied to join the panel as an application process and was successful. And, it, and that was back in I think um, twenty one March twenty one when we started this. It's been a bit longer. Um, it, it would have been fantastic, I guess, beforehand to have met all these people face to face or on the panels. And um, I do sort of know people, but these, these, anyway, it was all on Zoom as it would have been over yeah. over the pandemic. Um, really interesting to see how rigorous the EF is in its processes. So this, I mean, you kind of, I, I trusted them, but I didn't know how it worked. Uh, so yeah, yeah. really interesting thing for me, uh, appointing the. Um, the, the research team. That was really interesting how that worked. 
um, setting the specification for that research. So, you know, you, you can't just say, okay, go off and find all you, you know, her research team with, with your interests and your own research programs and your, um, I hesitate to say biases, but we've all got biases, but, yeah, you know, philosophies sure, sure. and so on. Um, you can't just say, go off and tell us what you find out because, you know, you'll, 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 they'll find out to some extent well, there'll be some confirmation bias and, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So there's, it's really rigorous in setting out, these are the papers, or these are the dates of papers you can use. This is kind of evidence that those papers need to have. So they need to be randomized control trials, not longitudinal studies. I love a longitudinal study, but for perfectly sound reasons, they're not included. It has to be the right age group, which again, makes total sense. And actually that will lead into one of my sort of thoughts about what I'll pre-warn a, th a thing that I'm thinking about is why is the secondary guidance slightly different to the primary guidance? You might think yeah, it should sure, be the same. Sure. Um, anyway, mm -hmm. it's not. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is that that age group of that, that the research that's done on five to 11 year olds is different to the research that's done on 11 to 18 year olds mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. So, that was all fascinating. Getting the research back and finding it, there's not as much as I was hoping for. I've been, I've, yeah, you sure, know, sure. as a school teacher, and I work in schools, I don't have access to Athens and all of the, um, you know, I, I, I do love digging into the references behind these sort of meta studies or the, the, these reviews. And some of them are available, and that's great, and some of them aren't, um, and quite actually quite a few of them aren't. And, and so... I was hoping there was this big sea of evidence out there that I just couldn't act. It's really not there. So my other yeah. my other big theme I'm thinking I'd like to talk about if we get a chance is yeah. why don't we get the why don't we get the research done that I think we need? Um, there's, yeah. there's different. There is research out there, but it 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 is not answering the questions that I've got as a as a school teacher. Yeah, sure. so, you know, I, so so that's a sort of limiting factor on what the report could talk about but the, yeah. the evidence that they've got here is is what they could talk about with real integrity and uh, reliability so yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a fascinating process one area you initially mentioned was your early experience teaching english as a foreign language so me to this point about the communication of science as a, a, a rich complex language particularly for young children um, and it becomes, a, you know, it's a recommendation around explicit teaching around vocabulary. Um, what were your reflections both on that area of explicitly teaching the language of science and how does that chime with your background and your teaching? I mean, to go, to go back to the early 90s, it was, you know, those that was the methodology that we taught English as a foreign language was very explicit. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't expect anyone. I mean, you might, so this that's probably not a great example because I was working with 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds. And, and that the 50 year old brain is is different to the five year old brain. Um, I can I yeah. can assure you. So, uh, um, you know, that, the, the, but, but that idea of, of explicit teaching has been with me since since then. Um, I think we know that children from children exposed to rich language do pick it up really uh, effectively but you can't you can't plan for this sort of rich exposed language you can't ensure that this, the key terms are taught um it's really hard to track so i think the the explicit bit really chimes with with my understanding i i, I think we 
when we talk about the priorities of science and why we teach science, not every child is going to go on to be uh, an academic researcher in, or work in, work in the sciences, yet everyone is going to be a citizen and needs to be able to understand and comprehend the messages that are coming to us through the media. To be able to evaluate it, yes, that's a different skill, but actually just to comprehend it in the first place using the kind of technical language and the, the, the report talks about tier two, tier three language that, that children need, or children need. We, I, I quite often think, okay, we're teaching this now, but what will that child need when they're 30? We're kind of preparing that 30-year-old, um, and what will they need? And I think understanding the, the, the nature of science and how science works, yes, that is important if you're going to be able to critically evaluate what's being said. So if you read something on Facebook, you know, in your stream that says vaccines are toxic, um, you know, you need those tools to be able to evaluate that, but you also need the language to be able to read that. And I think literacy mm. is key for democratic process for making informed choices. I think it's really important. One of the wrinkles that I think was really helpful in this guidance, which perhaps builds on and is a bit different from other areas of guidance around reading a bit more generally, um, and in our literacy guidance reports, for example, is this focus on polysemous vocabulary. So words like attract, words yeah. like force and how they mean one thing in science and one thing elsewhere. So I, I think it's useful how it's not just explicit language teaching like we see in other parts of the curriculum. There are specific challenges out there in science. That That's a really good point. And I know, in fact, I hadn't, that's not something that I've thought about or written about previously. So reading of that in the mm -hmm. report um, that they'd drawn out from the evidence was, was uh, yeah, that was one of those little, uh, you know, you get those little light bulb moments. Another yeah. one was... Yeah. I don't know. I, I haven't quite processed this yet, but that idea that tier two, the way they've defined it, I don't. I don't think it really makes any difference in practice. But it, it sort of made me yeah. jump. Like I normally think of tier two language as sort of dinner table, yeah. uh, sophisticated sort of language, yeah. like middle middle class. Now uh, you know, educated anyway. Um, yeah. Language that the that some kids will get and some kids won't get, and you need to teach. But actually, they're talking about tier two as jump the the kind of words that jump across the sciences rather than just mm. more sophisticated language yeah. that you might read in a newspaper. Yeah. So I, I quite like that. Um, how's, yeah. how's the word hypothesis used in biology that might be slightly different to how it's used in physics and chemistry or, you know, even more nuanced yeah. in electricity compared to cell biology? You know, that, that I think is yeah. really interesting. That, and, and, and that use, I mean, we've, it's, a, it's a real battle with the words, you know, a lot of these words, energy is a killer, um, you know, Oh, I have a coffee to get my, you know, to get my energy up. Get, got very little energy in. <laughs> it's hot. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not. Yeah. It's not like a glucose, you know, Mars bar. So yeah, all yeah. of those words, all of those. It's a, it's a, it's a real. The English language is a real trap for potential scientists. Yeah, it's a bit of a minefield, and I'm I'm using figurative language even to describe the complexity of it. Uh, I think one thing you made that point that actually. We, we can label these tiers or polysemous. Actually, I think for me, the message is no matter what we're labeling, it's just being really intentional and being explicit, being clear and not assuming knowledge. And, and actually, you know, pupils do have knowledge of the word energy, but the concept is so varied that in science, very quickly, they can have a preconception or develop a misconception from that language. So I think that stands out as a, a really useful addition from my perspective. So the guidance outlines uh, these seven steps to support pupils towards becoming 
more independent scientists who can work scientifically. And these steps progressively shift from greater teacher input to greater pupil input, building towards, you know, that ultimate goal of children becoming independent scientists. Why do you think this progression is important? That sort of gradual release of, of control. I mm -hmm. think it's because um, it's to do with working memory. I think it's to do with attention. If once children understand enough to do the next little bit, then you let them do the you you want you want them to become autonomous learners. You you know there won't always be a teacher standing there to to. I mean, actually, saying that typically scientists do always have mentors and um, other people to be constantly um, checking ideas with their, either their peers or, or or more typically a senior researcher. So you do always get this sort of mentor um, relationship. So I don't think you will ever. I don't think it ever goes away that you get a hundred percent. Uh, pupils working on their own and the teacher can just sit back and watch this amazing learning happening I think there's always got to be real careful thoughtful teacher planning that sort of intention intentionality that and, and I was really pleased to see that that word explicit used so often throughout the throughout the throughout the guidance but but specifically for this working scientifically because you I don't believe you learn by doing it's just too much um, it, it really needs to be broken down and that needs it needs to be someone who gets it, who breaks it down. Um, mm -hmm. So you know that 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 expert who's the teacher needs to know their children. So it's not like a recipe that you follow this and it's going to automatically happen. You need to be constantly tweaking and guiding, looking at the kids who have got it, looking at the kids who haven't got it, and then gradually allowing them more and more autonomy. You do want them to be able to say, do you know what? I'm really curious why dogs pant or I'm really curious why, I mean, see these questions, uh, you know, the kid, anyway, well, there are good science, there are not even good scientific, there, is, there are scientific questions that it's possible to answer and just all the other questions. And kids come in, if you want them to be able to be independent scientists, you would waste a heck of a lot of time to say, what are we interested in today? Oh, I, I don't know why that cloud looks like a dog. Well, you're never going to answer that. Uh, but why do why do we why do, why does why do we put a washing on the line, um, or how quickly does it dry on a windy day? That is a question that you could you could tackle scientifically. But kids won't know how to do that until they've got a huge bank of experience. They won't yeah. be able to out which questions you can answer and which ones you can't. Um, what techniques you would use? You do, you know you need a toolkit for that, and uh, that's just too big a world for novices to be able to negotiate yeah children do have good questions though don't they okay i'm now deter i'm determined to know ben why a dog pants uh you've completely waylaid my thinking in this interview well it's a good question so you can say i see this is why i think the teacher needs to set these 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 cool questions and it's a skill isn't it i mean um one of the one of the yeah, outcomes yeah. of the kind of inquiry research that's often done is that kids love inquiries well of course they do um and, and great and i and I, you know I, I sometimes feel sort of greg grindian saying you know i want them to like science but really i want them to understand it more so 
My final question, uh, Ben, is is actually it's related to your role. So um, you work across the trust and you work with lots of other senior leaders who are making decisions about curriculum and, and school prioritisation. And, and we might be thinking about you know a deputy head who's leading curriculum or a primary head teacher. What do they need to consider and think about when it comes to primary science? You know, it's not enough to just kind of, here's a Gantt report, you know, great things happen. What do they need to be thinking? What would your message for them be? I, I think the key here is to recognise the the scale of the job, the scale of the task. It's it's not so. There's a risk with the the, the way the, the the report's been presented. I think the full report is really well written. It's really clear. I think Katie and Bob did a great job putting together that information in a really accessible way. When you read the original papers, it's a beast. Um, this is this is this is super, super clear, um, really readable. It's, I, but I, but I, I totally get um, as a senior leader in a school that you know there there are a fair few reports, subject reports. There are other, you know, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of information coming at you thick and thick and fast. Don't just read the summaries. Read read it properly, and actually, it's, you've got to be strategic with 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 science with any of the subjects. But I think science is 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 has particular challenges, not least because teacher confidence is is quite often low um you've got the whole issue of resourcing it that the skill of managing a practical yeah. is really tricky um you know you got but but there's there's a there's a sort of really operational nuts and bolts level that you could focus on at the expense of thinking about quality of teaching and quality of curriculum and quality of provision you know how to, how to how to make if you give your head of so you're the person responsible for science an hour a week they're probably going to you're going to have a nice resource cupboard but you and you might well have everything you know new batteries and and bulbs that work and all that sort of stuff which is great but then they're not going to be walking around looking at uh, working dropping into classrooms working with colleagues doing coaching one-to-one um all of that all of that stuff is what makes a real difference on the ground um so yeah. you know i, I think you've got to think really long and hard about it. you've got limited time um to share between english math science history geography or all, all of those how much does science need you know english tends to get because it's because it's examined in year six english tends to get a great chunk of time and attention and curriculum time and year six you know that i'm yeah it, it's a constant battle uh, class teachers want to say well we're going to drop science this week because we're going to do a reading sats paper or you know and all these things mm. that happen every day i think someone needs to really fight the corner for science um and it's yeah. quite a big corner <laughs> so you're gonna to have to be you're yeah, gonna have yeah. a resource okay that's really helpful that's a good point to end on so i think uh, hopefully to take the fighting analogy the gang offers you a really handy weapon although i'm now a bit nervous of creating this kind of oppositional kind of uh, battle going on but i think that point time strategy and this is it's a corner of the curriculum but it's a big old corner i think that's my my reflection what you stated and teachers need support and resources are great valuable necessary but insufficient you need that additional support you just described that feels like a great point to end on um so we're talking about more time and consideration thank you ben for your time uh, keep up with the science writing i'm a big fan of how clearly you uh, communicate this work um and if people don't follow ben uh, please do and look up his publications and his and his trust work uh, really excellent thank you again ben for your time
Thank you. That was good fun. I'm really pleased to invite our third and final guest, Michaela Moore, who's Director of Primary Science at the Delta Academy Trust uh, up in the north of England. Uh, Michaela, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background in primary science? Yeah, um, so um, I started as a, a science lead um, in, in a school um looking at developing the curriculum there and um supporting with resources for working scientifically um then I got the opportunity to join Delta Academy's trust as their, their director of learning for primary science so upscaling that work um, and working across 35 different schools to support in curriculum design um, working scientifically again and, and looking at the resources for that, but also supporting leaders and teachers in the classroom and uh, working with children to look at what they remember and, and the experiences that they value. And um, since then, I've been able to work with the Science Learning Partnership for South and East Yorkshire as their primary lead and uh, work with a, a number of other schools and, and uh, multi-academy trusts as well um, to support um, their professional development programme. That's great to hear. <clears throat> a real sense there of kind of working with lots of schools um, with primary science, not always um, an area that gets that kind of central coordinating support, but so crucial with curriculum and, and supporting primary colleagues, which you've heard so far around professional development for primary science. Um, so a uh, topic of this podcast is around our new primary science guidance report. Can you talk a little bit about um, how the guidance might have reflected some aspects of your own um, science teaching practice um, and you know the schools that you've worked with? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, their first recommendation on vocabulary is just huge in supporting children um, to understand their learning, but also the key concepts um, and explaining their thinking too. And I think vocabulary is such um, an important area across the curriculum. We've developed it in lots of different areas, but to have that focus on science specific vocabulary um, I think that just feeds into being able to explain, but then to also see it in, in context as well, when we look at working scientifically, um, to give children that opportunity to use it in terms of those models that they might see and apply it, but also the way they talk about working scientifically, giving children that time to explore the materials, to understand and have the skills and develop those skills um you know alongside the knowledge of course but how often do we put equipment in front of children and almost have that expectation that they're going to know what to do with it and use it accurately and I think it's really reassuring that the guidance puts a model in place to to look at how to scaffold that use of equipment for children but also still give them that opportunity for for that hands-on learning and and just to pick up on, I, I think the the point about working scientifically keeps on coming through. I think as an area um, that's valuable, really important, but a bit fuzzy, fuzzier. So if we think about vocabulary instruction, that feels familiar, and I think people will kind of you know catch on to that first recommendation quite comfortably. Just can you just talk and, and explain kind of working scientifically from your perspective and, and what that looks like in in the schools and the trust. Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, it's really important to have a range of scientific equipment for the children to be able to use. Um, so, 
you know, just developing that. And I think that can be a barrier sometimes because if you don't have budgets for that, then you, that's a, a point of investment that we might need to look at in terms of primary science. Um, but where where that isn't a barrier and you've got those high quality resources for children, then giving them time to first of all explore the materials. You know, these are probably unfamiliar things to them or they've maybe not been able to look at them in depth before. And you're, it's all, it should already be linked to a, con, a, a concept um, and that, I, I suppose, a context as well in terms of where you're delivering the work and scientific element to whatever knowledge is part of the curriculum. So then giving them the understanding and that exploration to try and match why might we be using this? What might it be giving us or telling us? What units of measure are there there? How would I use this? And, and that that time to look at it on an individual level, but maybe as a group as well and share that understanding before the teacher may be modelling how to effectively use it, but still giving the children that opportunity to, to look at it for themselves and, and sort of drive their learning forward in that way. But I think the scaffolding from the teacher and that modelling and that explanation is really, really important to then enable our children to be able to use them effectively and accurately and develop those skills, um, as would be stated in the national curriculum through working scientifically. But perhaps we've not really given them that time and opportunity before. So I think it is really um, good that they've got that. And then that opportunity for discussion and reflection as well. How did other groups use it? What did they find? Could they maybe refine their practice? All of those skills that we'd have as a scientist are now at the forefront from this guidance. Hi, Michaela. I know as part of your role, uh, you work with early career teachers. Uh, so I was just wondering, are there any sort of recommendations from the guidance report that you wish were available to you when you were starting out as a teacher? Oh, absolutely. I think... Um, I think being able to relate it to concepts as well um, in, in the real world, I think that's really important. You know, when we look at science, our world today is increasingly driven by science. So then to, to have a recommendation that links it to real world concepts and models, I think is really important. And it's perhaps something that's quite simple, but overlooked in terms of that support for teachers and early career teachers. But also, I think it's really important as well that when it talks about explaining their um, thinking, that it can be written or verbal and that power of dialogue. Increasingly, we're finding children that have a barrier in terms of writing things down. So in order to showcase their scientific understanding and learning, to be able to do that verbally and to really highlight the power of dialogue, it's breaking down those barriers. But it's also really reassuring to see if you were an early careers teacher that perhaps it doesn't always have to be written down in terms of demonstrating that understanding, that you could record it and perhaps use the, the likes of QR codes and yeah. things like that to support children to really flourish in science. And I think having that in a guidance is something that would have really supported me because I always felt like things had to be written we down, down. Of that evidence base. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely, I totally agree. Um, I know as well as part of your role, you work with like 35 schools. So you'll work with uh, a whole range of uh, primary science leads. So what advice could you give to um, other primary science leads looking to engage with or share the guidance recommendations? 
I think I'd just digest it really, really carefully to begin with. I'd consider what you already do. So it's not about changing everything. A lot of what's in here is probably things that you do, but it's probably small tweaks to enhance it. Mm-hmm. And then think about those priorities. What do your children need first and foremost? What what would they need to enhance their science? And then how can you support t- teachers to do that? But really get the senior leadership um, on board so that they um, are supportive with you from that implementation stage right through. Um, so just so that you've got all of that and it's seen as a priority. But yeah, I would really consider what you do and then pick an element to focus on once you've done all of that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I definitely think sort of reading it, you might think the recommendations are familiar, but there's so much within each recommendation, uh, even just sort of slight um uh, sort of slight elements might make you think and think oh how could I do this differently um each recommendation sort of starts with that problem or that vignette there's that similar format throughout the the guidance report uh were when you read the vignettes were there any that sort of stood out to you as something that maybe you'd experienced or uh, yourself or seen in other colleagues or um uh, anything that sort of resonated with you that could be a challenge yeah um I think creating that learning environment, I think, is sometimes tricky for for um, for, for teachers and for children as well to have that confidence. I, th- I, I sort of think when you're thinking about explaining their thinking, if children aren't confident in what they're doing, then that becomes um, tricky to, to implement. If teachers aren't always secure in their subject knowledge, they might not feel that they can um, have that depth of questioning to support children. Um, and that reasoning and justification always going further. I think sometimes as well, you, you kind of have that sort of surface level, don't you, in terms mm-hmm. of, oh, they look like they've got it, so let's move on. Um, so I think we've got a real depth of of learning here, and, and that's what it's sort of um, looking at. But I also think that the power of dialogue um maybe we don't always scaffold that enough for children in terms of how to do that. So I think when we've looked at that area and and the sort of challenges that might come with that in terms of that scaffold and that um, ability to support children further, um, I think that's something that I looked at and thought, oh, yeah, dude, that's something that I definitely think we could we could look at more. Um, But, yeah, I think they all posed interesting questions and it did make you reflect on your practice a little bit more and think, oh, yeah, actually, when when I look at that, um, just a tweak here would would improve that as per the guidance. So um, I think they've all got power to them and and those challenges. I've got a last question, Michaela. It comes back back to a point that you made um, earlier around science leads and communicating and having senior leaders on board um i just wondered what piece of advice you had for senior leaders it might be primary heads and and colleagues who aren't necessarily um experts in science but they're they're seeing that there's the significant primary science guidance report and their science leads you know talking about about the importance of this work what advice would you give to primary senior leaders a bit more broadly about the about primary science about the usefulness of the guidance um I think in terms of um, primary science and the usefulness of this guidance, it's 
science our world is driven by science now and that's not going to change in the future it's just going to become more and more prevalent and if we are to equip our children which is what school's all about with the skills they need for the future then I think we really need to start prioritizing science more in that way um so let's look at these recommendations and the guidance and let's you know pick you know be selective in what we want to achieve we and and do that well um, so work with with your leader and your staff to look at that. But science has so many transferable skills as well. The reasoning and the justification, the problem solving, the art of collaboration that will be seen through the rest of your curriculum. But if you prioritize it in science, then it can it, it will just thread through the school because you will pick up things that are transferable in other aspects. When we look at the power of dialogue, you know, when when we think about how things are recorded today, they're not always written down or, um, you know, it, it might be through video um, recordings and things like that. So if we're developing that dialogue, if we've got children who can explain their thinking initially through science, but then through all aspects of the curriculum, we're equipping children with what they need. Um, to, to go forward and, and participate in, in that sort of future world for them. It feels like a, a brilliant ending because we've got the importance of science, but also the necessity to prioritise it. And, and even within that, kind of prioritise some of our next steps so they're manageable. Um, so thank you for that final insight, but thank you for your time, Michaela, um, and, and the work you do working with schools and colleagues uh, in this crucial area. Thank you. Thank you. That was really interesting, Grace. I think a quick summary for me, I think I, I went into this podcast having you know, explored the guidance and thinking the likes of vocabulary instruction stood out as a recommendation, um, assessment felt familiar to me. But I think what became clear throughout um, these interviews is there's aspects like working scientifically, which might appear in the national curriculum, but aren't so clear. And I think it really stood out that this guidance will offer help with a shared language and a shared understanding about kind of sometimes tricky, slightly fuzzy concepts um, like working scientifically. That that was really clarified for me. Definitely. I just think there's something in there for everyone. Uh, so if you're starting out as a new primary science lead, it's going to be super useful, uh, possibly to help you sort of audit and uh, help you sort of prioritise. But for those more experienced primary science leads, you know, a lot of the recommendations might feel familiar to begin with, but when you read in depth, take that time, look at the details, uh, read the worked examples, the case studies, there's going to definitely be takeaways for everybody. Yeah, I think that the specificity, one point that stood through around you can work on a recommendation, one area, and that's manageable, particularly for busy science leads. But it feels like there's kind of, yeah, there's real openness and an important choice for mm -hmm. primary professionals as well and, and kind of prioritization. And um, it feels like a, another message, um, which you would expect from colleagues who are passionate about science, but is about prioritizing science in the curriculum. We've just seen kind of, you know, internationally that it's a bit of a challenge. Um, so it feels like this is a real opportunity, a timely opportunity to prioritize primary science. Okay, let's uh, stop there. Thank you to all our listeners for or following for another podcast, um, Evidence Interaction. If you've not subscribed 
already um well that can be um your new year's resolution to subscribe to the podcast um we've got um lots of um exciting episodes lined up we're going to be talking about our new implementation guidance update um, imminently um so press subscribe um and follow us and we'll see you again soon